As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague, Stuart Mandel. And Stu, we have a, a, an interesting guest that's going to join us later on in the podcast, who did who was part of a remarkable team uh, putting together a story that you and I both read. It was an extensive story onto a former football player at Penn State, who is a vile predator who terrorized that campus and then beyond. We're going to get into the to how that story kind of came together because I think you and I were both really fascinated by the report. I was blown away by it, and I think it should win a Pulitzer. Yeah, and I I, I don't know what the Pulitzer competition is going to be like, but it's an amazing bit of journalism. Or and so, but before we get to uh, Paula Levine, who's going to join us later, um, I did want to ask you because there was something that got you really hot and bothered, and it is by Clemson Dabo Sweeney. And it's what? not the Dabo Swinney thing that has other people hot and bothered. So he did before there, by the way, did you watch their spring game or, or any of their spring game? I watched some spring games. I watched, I did watch a decent amount of that. Cause it was like Dabo running commentary throughout that. Yeah. I was hard to make it all the way through because it was just like watching a repeat of their team last season where neither quarterback could do anything. I, you know, their offensive line just completely overmatched by their great defensive line and, if you were tuning that in to be like, oh, what great fixes have they made to their offense? That wasn't uh, the Can day I, for before you. Before, I, before you go on your rant. Oh, yeah. You know, spring games are meaningless. No, 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 no. <laughs> before you go on your rant about Dabo, I just want to say, are you intrigued enough by Cade Klubnik, the early enrollee freshman, who, by the way, lit up the Elite 11 last summer, to have him on your Heisman draft watch list that we do internally? Hmm. I, I'm intrigued by him. I think, you know, not I, this is going to just be like totally throwing DJ under the bus. But I think if Clemson's going to contend for national championship next year, it's going to be because Kate Klubnick beat him out at some point in the season, much like Trevor Lawrence. Uh, you know, remember Kelly Bryant started the first four games of that season before Dabo turned to Trevor Lawrence and, and that team ended up winning a national championship. So you are done with DJ Uyunglele. 
you know, they, they kept Katie George was the sideline reporters kept raving about how he's in such better shape, but he didn't perform any differently. We also done. don't, I also don't know how much of that is. We, we took it for granted for so many years at Clemson. They just always had great receivers and I don't know that they have that right now, but my thing is more. So he did this interview with Chris Lowe at ESPN and this is Dabo Sweeney. We're talking, this is Dabo. And you know, Dabo's always been, he'll, he says what's on his mind. And I think, People have some people have turned on him sometimes because he's so opinionated, and sometimes those opinions are contrarian. And so a lot of people got fired up because he is still very like anti players making money. Okay, everybody's entitled to their opinion on that. That's not what I'm focused on. I'm focused on this right here. The question was, has your stance on using the transfer portal changed any? Because he has been over the years very anti transfer portal. My transfer portal is right there in that locker room. Because if I'm constantly going out every year and adding guys from the transfer portal, I'm telling all those guys in that locker room that I don't believe in them, that I don't think they can play. We're also not doing our job as coaches and recruiters if we're bringing in a bunch of transfers. We're not going to build our roster on transfers. Uh, To me, this struck me as very stubborn and Dabo thinking that because he's won national championships a certain way, he doesn't have to change his philosophy in any way. And I just, I think he's, he's asking for trouble because the sport has changed considerably with transfers being eligible immediately. And so, you know, we, we talked a few years ago, right. We saw Clemson, Alabama, Clemson becoming Alabama's foil and Alabama's equal, but Alabama uses the transfer portal to upgrade their roster. They go get a Jamison Williams who ends up being one of their best players. You know, you think Jamar Gibbs from Georgia tech will be one of their best players this year. So are you telling me Dabo is just going to, so badly out recruit Nick Saban that he doesn't need to bring in those kind of guys. I don't, I don't buy it. Uh, I think you make a good point because if it's just helping you get a little bit better, maybe, maybe one of the kids you expected to be really good. Maybe they didn't progress the same way. Maybe there were injuries at a position. There was some sort of other attrition. I mean, what Davos said to a large degree is what I've heard from former Duke staffers. Uh, it was how David Cutcliffe felt about it. And it was a strong, you know, like about loyalty and I'm not going to bring guys in and do that. Um, and I, I, I see your point. It's going to be interesting to see will Clemson, you know, like has Clemson, did Clemson reach its ceiling and now because of all sorts of, you know, their facilities upgraded and they, you know, they, what became more of a national brand. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is kind of working here. The, the facilities have upgraded. They became more of a national brand. Dabo as a coach became a much bigger figure. Now they also had, have lost some really good assistants, right? You know, oh, so yeah. out in losing Brent Venables, who was a terrific defensive coordinator, losing Tony Elliott after losing Jeff Scott a few years ago. Um, so to, based on what you're saying, not just of the transfer portal, but giving the context of losing Venables, Tony Elliott, you know, in recent years, um, and I don't know what you think, but like now all of a sudden, you know, Miami may be much more formidable in the ACC given Mario Cristobal, we know how he's going to recruit there and they are pushing it NIL wise and being aggressive there. I mean, if I asked you right now, do you think Clemson, will not win another national title on Dabo Sweeney, you would say? I would say if he doesn't change his stance on that, they will not. Um, there's no reason Clemson has to go away. They, they, 
have the cachet and, and, and I, and nobody's saying they need to build there. He said, we're not going to build our roster on transfers. Nobody's saying you should. Um, most programs still build their roster with, with high school kids. But what you're missing out on is uh, the sport now has two ways to acquire talent recruiting and free agency. And everybody else that wants to be a national championship is, is using it that way. So now if he were coming off a 13 and one season, you'd say, okay, well, they don't really need any transfers. They're coming off a season in which their offense was miserable, in which their offensive line was clearly struggling. Um, you know, some people in that situation would probably take a transfer quarterback, but that's okay. I guess if he wants to, you know, uh, stick with the guys he has, he has. He has arguably the top, top rated quarterback recruit in the country's there right now. Yeah. So I'm not saying that's a necessarily a, we're not talking about like they've got a finished product roster and they don't need any help. Um, <laughs> the funny thing about this is that, you know, they've lost guys to the portal as most teams do. Um, but they have not really used it to, I'm not even talking to replace. Like if you lose a guy and you need to replace somebody at that position, you know, I think even he would say he's up open for that. Do you want to know who is the only, I'm going to give you a quick say it off the top of your head. Who is the only transfer Clemson has taken this offseason? Hunter Johnson. Hunter Johnson. Of all people, the guy who left former there the first time. Former five-star yep, quarterback, went to your alma mater. Struggled mightily and is now going back with no delusion that he's going to be their quarterback. He's going back because he wants to go into coaching and, and Dabo will give him that opportunity. So they just flat out, he's just stubbornly saying, I'm not going to use this thing. And I think it's a wasted opportunity because – this, they're not Colorado, like struggling to get people to take them seriously. They're Clemson. They have the cachet to go out and get uh, a Jamison Williams type transfer. And he's just not going to do it. And so I think if that's the case, if that remains the case, yeah, they're going to get uh, left behind. Which ultimately is a, is a bigger problem if you're a Clemson fan. Losing Brent Venables or this non-willing transfer stance? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, Brent Venables is a big loss, um, but we've seen other programs lose coordinators, replace them and be fine. Now you could say is Dabo being too loyal and wait, wait, wait. Like, so we've, you said what you said, take Alabama out of it. Like well, they're the main example of that. Yeah. Like, but take Alabama out of it. Cause it's a Saban thing. And I feel like that's a different dynamic altogether. Like how many other programs have lost like a really top assistant coach and they have not, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just trying to think in my head. Mm, Well, Georgia, you know, went to the national title game the first time with Mel Tucker as the DC. Right. And then the second time was with Dan. I don't, I don't think like, here's what's different to me about this. And I I think highly of Mel Tucker, but Mel Tucker is coaching with Kirby smart. Kirby smart is a defensive guy. Dabo's not a defensive guy. And I feel like Brent Venables was a game changer for them. Uh, he's a really aggressive Absolutely. play caller. He has a, he's a, just a really aggressive play caller. He has a feel for things. Without him, and I'm not saying that you know Dabo's sense on who he promoted up will not will not work out well. I just think it's like um, you know I'm just trying to think of an example of somebody who was at the top of their game, a program they lost a big you know assistant who was so vital to that. Um, and then, 
you know, where do they go? From? No, you're right. I think usually it's the other way, right? When LSU lost Dave Aranda, that defense imploded. Um, the other thing is because Dabo uh, is continuing to run the, you know, like it sometimes feels like he he's, um, how do I say, it? you know, like Duke, like they only ever hire former Duke players to be their assistant coaches and, and now their new yep. head coach, you know, so, so he loses Brent Venables and he replaces him with Wes Goodwin who has never actually had an on-field role at Clemson, though he's been there for 11 years. So maybe that'll work out. I, I don't, I'm not going to rule the guy out, but that's a different approach, right? Then Ohio State needed a defensive coordinator this year. So they went out and got Jim Knowles, the, you know, Broyles Award finalist. The tricky thing for a play caller, especially with defense, but in general, is when you talk to coaches, they said that's the hardest thing to get a feel for is – how will he do when he's actually calling in a game if he's never really done it? Right. There are guys who are really good on the board. It's a different thing in terms of like what happens when the bullets are flying, you know, and, and that's the tricky part. And, you know, we'll see how it goes at Clemson. Clemson is still more talented than most, if not all of the teams in the ACC. It was crazy. Watching that spring game, it's crazy that guys like Xavier Thomas are still there. They feel like they've been there forever. Um, and so – the transfer portal thing to me is more a difference of, you know, that, that could be the different ignoring the transfer portal could be the difference between going to the playoff and reaching the national championship or, or, you know, continuing to have more seasons like last year. If your defensive coordinator hire goes bad, that then you could really implode. Right. I mean, we've seen that if you're suddenly your defense is a complete mess, then we might be talking worse than camping world bowl. All right. So that was my, that was my 50, my 10 minute rant for today. We want to get to our guest. It's the excellent Paula Levine, tremendous investigative reporter for ESPN. She co-authored this story this week. It's a, it's a intense story. You got to set aside about an hour to read it. Um, co-authored uh, with Tom Janot, um about an untold, it's an untold story about a uh, serial predator who was a former Penn state football player. Let's get to her now. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, we're pleased now to be joined by Paul Levine from ESPN. We told you guys about this amazing story, um, disturbing story that she and Tom Juno wrote, wrote uh, on ESPN.com. And Paula, we, we read this and you think that the subject of it, um, Todd Hodney, should be like, how have I not heard this name before? He, he seems like he should be one of the all-time most notorious uh predators and criminals and yet had never heard the name until your story so i'm going to ask you 
how did you find out who he was and, and, and what prompted you to do the story? Well, there's actually a pretty incredible backstory with this that involves my colleague, Tom Janot. Um, Tom actually knew of Todd Hodney back in high school. Um, he played for a rival school and he recalled when in the 80s, when Todd Hodney was uh, convicted of, of murder, he recalled that case. And it wasn't until recently, uh, within the last couple of years, Tom was going through some journals that he had kept from, you know, from that time period uh, that he was going back to as part of some research for a book that he was doing and came across something that he had written. And it was a note to himself, which was, you know, at someday, you know, look into Todd Hodney. And this was um, in 2020. And around this time, he, he had started this not knowing much more about Todd than what, it, what he remembered from back then. And he was not aware that there were crimes that Todd Hodney committed in state college when he was still at Penn State. And it wasn't until he started asking around and talking to some of his former teammates that he realized that this is a bigger story. And at the time, um, Todd had just, Todd had died in April of 2020. And Tom was thinking about doing a story uh, and we, and, and this was during COVID. And so there was a thought that he would do sort of a story along those lines. And it became very clear very quickly that this was a much bigger story. And most of the story has been untold. And so this is around the time when he calls me and I vividly remember when he called me and, and started talking about this, that I knew right away, this was a ripe opportunity to investigate everything there was to know about Todd Hodney. And to answer your question, why on earth, after all the stuff that came out during Sandusky, after all the institutional reflection at Penn State during that time, has no one ever heard of this case? And, and what turns out to be, as we say in the story, perhaps the most dangerous predator to ever play college football. For context, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with who Tom is, Tom is a legendary uh, magazine writer from GQ and Esquire. And I don't even know if I should use the word arguably, like the great, you know, the best magazine writer, takeout writer, um, journalist that there is. The fact that you said what you said about the, I don't know if it's coincidence or whatever, that he happened to be, you know, the one who had this connection is kind of, you know, mind blowing in itself. Um, so spinning that forward, you've done a, some amazing work as an investigative person in your career. And I think about this as you're working, this is obviously a massive undertaking as anybody who's read it has seen. How often are you sitting there going as you get into this? Oh my God, I can't believe we're going down this Penn State well. Is it deja vu? Because I mean, as I'm as I'm reading this, I'm thinking Jerry Sandusky was there the whole time this guy played there. He was like, I know he was like maybe 71 or 70 when he got there. So how, in the context of all that, like, it's not to say, are we having a epiphany about Joe Paterno and the Penn State program and how it was viewed? But as you're reporting this, how are you processing the that aspect of like how we looked at it back then there was just like, it was mind blowing when the Sandusky paternal stuff happened 10 years ago. 
now looking back, it's just even more like, what the hell? You know, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't process that as I was reading it because I kept on coming back to it because we know of this other stuff and now you have this um, prequel to it, basically. Right. You know, that was so interesting when we were crafting the story and talking about how are we, how are we making the tie between this and Sandusky? And the answer to that really came from the people that we interviewed and especially a lot of the women who were on campus at the time of Hodney, when we talked to them about, you know, when, in fact, oftentimes it came up without me asking, oftentimes they would bring it up, like just sort of out, you know, out of the blue, they would say, you know, when the Sandusky news broke, I thought to myself, this doesn't surprise me at all. This was the environment that was already brewing at Penn State. And it is, it is so true. It's even though these are different offenses involving different people, though, obviously Sandusky had, you know, Sandusky was one of the coaches that Hodney, Hodney would have worked with. But even though these are different instances with different people, what you can say to what happened at Penn State, as you can say to what happened at Baylor, at Michigan State or Michigan or other schools that have these issues is that it's never just one bad apple. It's never just one instance. It's a system that over time adopts a certain status quo of how we address these type of incidents that enables bad actions to happen and good people not to do the right thing or not to do as much as they could. And I think that is when you look at these and why we felt it so important to draw that connection, this is another one of those cases where you have, you know, a pattern of behavior with Hodney with, we're not going to talk about this, you know, this, you know, this guy's gone away. We're, we're never going to have to deal with it again. You know, this was just an anomaly. And, and then, you know, you sort of have that, that level of silence, that level of, you know, we have someone in the story, a former administrator with the university saying, hey, you know, Joe didn't want these things to come out. It was better for the program if they didn't. And that becomes practice. And that is not helpful. It is harmful when you are trying to prevent these things from happening in the future. And you can see how that played out at Baylor, you can see how it played out at, at Michigan State. You can see how it plays out everywhere else. I mean, it's it, it's a pattern and it's a, a disturbing one. It's a complicated situation. And, and it occurs to me, we haven't actually laid out the timeline here yet for people who haven't read the story. Um, he was, you know, he, he was, he, he raped multiple women on the Penn State campus. Only one of those cases was actually prosecuted. Uh, he was convicted and in a, the most probably amazing, disgusting, you know, disgusting yeah, and like, like yeah. shocking part of your whole story is that he's convicted of rape and the judge lets him go free until the sentencing. And which just leads to this awful, awful crime spree uh, in Long Island. Um, so when you talk about kind of culpability of the university, you know, Joe Paterno's name comes up a lot in this story. I'm going to try to put myself in the, even though it's uncomfortable, in the shoes of if I'm a Penn State fan who still feels a lot of loyalty to Joe Paterno and might say, 
well, he kicked the guy off the team. Um, he couldn't have stopped him from doing this. Why are you bringing Paterno into the story? Explain why you thought that was an important thread to, to maintain. Well, I think it's worth noting. He did not kick him off the team because of this incident. In the summer of 78, uh, Todd Hodney got busted for breaking into a record store. And so that's what got him suspended. But he was still, even though he was not playing, he was still, you know, with the team. And Paterno had him room with sort of a straight arrow on the team and had made a comment publicly saying like, look, you know, we, I hope that he learns from his, his mistake and left the door open to, you know, him having like, like Paterno did with a lot of guys who got into trouble. Like, you know, there is an opportunity for redemption. So it's not as though when this happened, Hodney had been completely separated from all things, you know, Penn state football. Um, from beginning to end with the case in state college, Paterno was involved. I mean, he was the first person that state college PD called when they issued a, a warrant for Hodney's arrest. He spoke to the players about testifying, you know, who could testify when they could go. Um, he was, he was definitely in now at the same time, there was a, a player who said he was going to go testify on Hodney's behalf. And Paterno said, if you do that, I'm kicking you off the team. And I think what, at, at the end of the day, the, the criticism that the survivors and others have about Paterno is that there was a real lack of acknowledgement. And, you know, you can, as a fan, you can argue whether or not he was obligated to do that, but he talks about players bad behavior and using them as an example for, you know, to deter behavior in others. He does not do that with Todd Hodney. And one of the, uh, a mother of one of the victims, the, the mother is now 84. Um, this is still something that doesn't sit well with her. She's like, why couldn't he have at least called and acknowledged this and said something like the fact that it seems like even though he was not going to stand up and defend Todd Hodney, there was also no acknowledgement that this had happened. And it was basically like, how quickly can I get separate from this and never have to talk about it again? And there was an opportunity to learn from this and to use this as, you know, some way to make the system better or some way to, to, you know, try to, to reach out to these women or, you know, he had more power than anybody and that's where the criticism is that that wasn't there. And it, it's not just on Paterno, it's on the university, you know, as a whole. One of the things that I, I think came up and it came up a lot 10 years ago, and it definitely resurfaces in this is a lot of times when we, and we as the media and we as a society kind of associate somebody having high levels of success with this, like all knowing wisdom or something. And I thought was interesting Later in the story, you bring up that Joe Paterno's son, Jay, had, had talked about in, his, in a book later about Joe Paterno's struggles talking about and dealing with like matters of sex and how squeamish he was. And you kind of get some of these like you just kind of recoil when you see it and it's out of ignorance and it's probably out of 
you, know, you could you could rationalize it in a bunch of different ways, but I think some of this is rooted in just like a, an ignorance where it's like they compartmentalize it, right? Even like, oh, that's gonna it's not our it's not gonna be our problem anymore. We've washed our hands of it, and then all of a sudden, the thing that of all the things that are tragic in there, and there are many, is especially like I, the judge's decision. All of a sudden, all the other horrific stuff and the lives that get ruined and taken because somebody didn't do enough, you know, and it's just like, and to the one part of this story where it was like, it felt uplifting in this was, and as a reader, I, I remember Irv Pankey's name just as a young kid. He was an offensive lineman in the NFL. I didn't know he played at Penn state. I just remembered the name. And when you start to get it, you guys start to get into the relationship he has with one of the survivors. Um, you literally get goosebumps because you're like, finally, somebody is stepping up. Um, and I thought, you know, there's for some of these stories, especially one that you're so emotionally invested in, I was like, you know, there's something that pulls it out of you. Like when you get to that point, can you kind of fill readers in on how that fit in with where you guys had been on this massive story you lived with for so long? Oh my God. I love Irv Pankey. I could talk about Irv Pankey all day. Um, yeah, it, it was. I remember when I was interviewing Betsy Saylor, who is the 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 main victim um, and the in the one who whose case ended up getting prosecuted in state college. And we're like an hour into the conversation, she's telling me all this horrible stuff that happened to her, and she gets to this point where, she, and she's talked about you know football players catcalling her and and just feeling like she was taking on this huge institution. And she gets to this point in the story where she says uh, that she had come back to campus. She's in this dorm room and she gets this knock on her door and she says she opens the door and there is this man that is like filling the entire door frame. Right. And he sticks out his hand and he says, you know, I, I don't have a can't repeat it verbatim, but basically I'm Irv Panky. I was in the courtroom when you described what happened to you. I want you to know, I believe every word you say. And then he tells her that she will never have to walk alone on this campus ever again. Like he's going to be her protector. And he, and he did, he was true to his word. Like he brought her into his fold. He hung out with her for the remainder of her time at Penn State. And I think it is worth noting that, as most people know, Irv Pankey is black. And back in the late 70s, he was, I think he says, one of like 12 player, black players on the team. There weren't that many black people, period, on campus. And it's significant because he and Betsy both speak to how this was this was a key part of his recognition of, I know what it's like to be a, a, not just alone, but like a, a group that, you know, is in the minority. And, and he says that he did not want her as being someone who is accusing a, a, a getting a Penn state football player in trouble. He didn't want her to be a pariah. It was that the, that humanity that he extended to her, that understanding of what I know what it's like to, you know, to, to be on this campus and, you know, not be part of the majority. And I'm, and, and I, you know, I believe you, I mean, just for any survivor at any point in time, 
for someone to say, I believe you is crucial. But to come from a teammate of Todd Hodney's who was in the courtroom initially to support his teammate and to come out of that and be like, wow, like I, I believe I, I, I believe this woman, what he did for her was something that few survivors get in that process. And she, in her telling of this is saying how important this was to her. Like this made, this gave her, she says, a sense of freedom. And when she was telling me this story in the context of all this other horrible stuff that Todd did, as soon as she told me this story, I knew right then this unto itself is a thing. And, you know, and then of course we interviewed Irv and their story together beyond that is it, it's, it's just beautiful. I mean, it is, it's, it is something that we did actually take and make into a film which is called Betsy and Irv, which will be coming out at some point in the future. But their interaction is, as you said, and as so many people have said, going through it, it does. It just gives you goosebumps. Like Irv Pankey is the example of what all athletes, in fact, just men in general, should do to support women in these situations. And and what it did for Betsy and what you can see what it did for Betsy 40-some years later is just a testament to how important that extension of humanity is and just how great of a guy Irv Pankey is. I would say another, if you want to call it uplifting part of this, you know, otherwise very disturbing story is that a lot of these survivors had been living for 40 something years with no idea that there were other survivors that had shared this experience until you told them about it. And I've never been in that situation as a reporter to, to tell somebody something that is basically life-changing and, and most notably of all that, you know, Todd Hodney's own daughter who, who had a relationship with him her whole life until he died, had no idea the extent of his history. And you guys were the ones to tell her that. Can you just describe like what, what that must be like for a reporter when you're sharing something, you know, like this is going to, this is going to dramatically change this person's life. I, I had so many moments like that. It's so many moments like that. And um, there's always a sort of second when you realize that when you're talking to someone, what she doesn't know. Right. And what, when that often played out was when I talked to the women who Todd Hodney assaulted in Long Island and they did not know that prior to, they, they didn't know the whole circumstance. They didn't know that the reason he was in Long Island was because a judge had let him go after having, having him, you know, be convicted of rape. I mean, to, to suffer with what's the horrible, violent crime of being assaulted. And then to know 40 some years later that, oh my God, like this, this shouldn't have, I mean, obviously it shouldn't happen period, but like this, someone did something so intentional to, to put me in harm's way. I think for a lot of them, that was a lot of anger. Um, and, but at the same time, they did appreciate knowing that there were others, especially the women in state college. I mean, what, 
couple of them, Betsy and Karen, were able to meet each other. And now, after all this time, develop this level of support for each other. And I, I also remember, um, you know, really unfortunately, uh, three of the, well, four actually of the women who were attacked uh, had, had since died. Um, and one of the daughters, I was talking to her and she was saying to me, she's like, yeah, you know, it's a, you know, I, it's, I don't know. She said, she didn't say it was a shame, but she's like, yeah, you know, it, it's uh, I'd heard, you know, he, he hanged himself in, in jail, you know, while after the um, you know, after the, the rape conviction. And I'm like, you think he, you think he died after he was convicted of, of rape? She's like, yeah, my buddy who's, you know, with the, at the time was with the correction system said he hanged himself in jail. And I'm like, no, she had no idea, no idea that, um, or sorry, it wasn't after the rape. It was after she knew he had been convicted of murder. Sorry. She knew he'd be convicted of murder, but she thought he, that he had hanged himself. And I said, no, I said, he died last. This, this was in 2021. I said, no, he died last year. And I mean, I remember there was just this absolute silence and she had no idea that he had been alive all this time. And it was, it was a huge weight for her because she thought about it in the context of if she had known that he was still alive, she would have reached out to him and she wanted that opportunity to tell him how much harm he had caused to her family and her mother who had since passed. And I, I just, I just remember, you know, her reaction to that was so, so shocking. And like, and that's something that really, really changed her. And yeah, there were so many of those moments. And, and with, and as you, you had mentioned Todd Hodney's daughter, um, you know, there are a lot of victims of Todd Hodney and I would say she's certainly one of them. And I, I know, you know, Tom Janot has been the one who's been in touch with her and the family. And I know that these revelations have been incredibly difficult for her. I mean, growing up with your dad in prison, that's hard enough. But then to find out after the fact that, you know, you thought he was in prison because of like a, you know, a, a drug deal gone violent and you find out, wow, it's a lot more than that. That's a lot to live with. Yeah, it's amazing work, Paula. Uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us today on the Audible. We encourage you guys to read the story if you haven't. Uh, it, Paula has done not just amazing work as an investigative reporter for ESPN for a long time, but really important work. I mean, more than that. And as Stu and I had mentioned, certainly on Baylor, but on so many Kate and so many other big stories. And uh, we appreciate you sharing that, and we appreciate the work you're doing. Well, thank you for highlighting it. I appreciate it. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. 
Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, last week, Bruce, I put out a call for more and frankly better mailbag questions. And boy, did you guys respond and uh, keep doing it. You always send your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com. I love the creativity on this first one from Patrick Hobson, starting right with the very beginning where he says, Dear Brew and Stoos. And you're going to see why when you hear this question. I'm here to heed the call. I tried to think of something both creative and worthy of debate. Choose two programs from different geographical regions to merge and create a superpower. So in other words, one school and its fan base will literally relocate to the other and bring all of its resources, including NIL money, tradition, and current roster with it. So the goal is to create a program that will win the most national championships in the next 20 years. And here's where it gets really hard. To make it a more interesting discussion, both current coaches at those programs will be fired immediately And you must choose any current head coach to be the coach for the entire duration of 20 years. Did you think, put some thought into this one? I did. First of all, Patrick, thank you for your ingenious way right down to the way you addressed it. I thought that was clever. I missed it the first time I read through it and then got it. Um, There is one, like something jumped out at me and I was like, I really like this combination. The part I didn't love, and I don't know why you saddled it with, if you didn't say bring your current roster with it, I would say let's take the Tennessee Vols who feel like they're the long suffering Tennessee Vols now because it's been well over a decade since they've been very relevant. Um, and they have, we know, we believe, we're pretty sure they have a strong NIL um, contingent and collective. Collective, yes. And they're aggressive. Um, they have storied history. We know where Tennessee or, you know, Tennessee's, uh, resources are, and let's stick them at Arizona state where you're in a pretty strong foothold in terms of, uh, the Phoenix area where there's some talent. You're also not that far from Southern California where there's a ton of talent and you're not that far from Texas. And also I'm not sure like no knock on Herm, but it's probably sooner than later that they need to part ways with Herm. Anyway, uh, Josh Heupel's done a nice job there, but I don't think either one of us look at Josh Heupel and say he's going to be a guy who probably is going to win national titles there. 
So yes, I'm not thrilled at the current roster, although I like Hendon Hooker and there's some few pieces there, but I just don't feel like they're close right now for, for competing for a national title, but with their NIL and their resources and in the new, um, in the new landscape where they'd be on the West coast in the PAC 12, as opposed to in the sec where there's Georgia and there's everybody else in the sec West, the, uh, I don't even know what they're calling them. The TSU, Tennessee state, Tennessee state sun devils. Um, I, I would like that mix. And this is, I'm going to combine two things. So our buddy Dennis Dodd did his top 10 coaches under 45 years old. And when I saw that list, I was like, eh, not, um, the list wasn't great. Once you got past the first few, it was a little bit underwhelming. Um, I don't think you're going to get Lincoln Riley. I'm being semi-realistic on this. Well, um, wait a minute. He said we could just pick anybody we want. Oh, if Not that's the case, then I'm moving Lincoln Riley. Sorry, Lincoln. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah. I, I'm actually very confused. I was going to take too. I'm sorry. The guy I was going to take was Billy Napier. Okay. I think he is one of those guys. And Billy Napier actually has, has coached it at Arizona State before. And he, so he knows that area. So I was going to take Billy Napier, but if you're telling me in this hypothetical question, I can have Lincoln Riley. I'm definitely taking Lincoln Riley. So I'm confused. Either I missed something in the question or you've added something to make it even more challenging. Did, were you under the impression it has to be schools that aren't currently powers? Yes, I was. Yes. Cause why else? Like if you were like, choose two programs, I mean, maybe I, I'm just thinking like, why would I, t- you know, like it's too easy to say, yeah, I'd like to take Alabama and move it to USC. Okay. Well, I took that approach. <laughs> I mean, so I'll give you kudos for thinking outside the box. So when I read this the first time, I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be really hard. And then I thought about it some more and I was like, wait a minute, why wouldn't I just combine Ohio state and Alabama? Where are you make, putting them? And make Kirby smart, the coach. Where are you putting them? Are you putting them like, I mean, that was the case. I, you know what? I would take. It says one thing. school and its fan base will relocate to the other. So Ohio State would relocate to Tuscaloosa. Um, and How about I do this? I mean, talk I about us. This would be a hell of a superpower. Combine, combine Alabama and Georgia and make Ryan Day the head coach. You can't. You ha- you ha- the current coaches are getting fired. That's I why know. I didn't. That's I why I didn't do Alabama, where Nick Saban, as great as he is, I don't expect him to. be. You're combining Alabama and Georgia. Time. Combining Alabama and Georgia, uh, that, the head coach. He said, choose two programs from different geographical regions. Oh yeah. Okay. So that's why I picked. Like I could have. I could have done. Uh, I could have done Ohio State and Georgia to get Nick Saban as my coach, but I don't know that Nick Saban is going to be Not my coach totally. for the next 20 years. Yeah. So I'm combining Ohio state and Alabama who both have amazing current rosters. And even though we're going to lose two really good coaches in the, in the, in doing that Curry smart is 46. So Ooh, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Okay. okay. Good question, Patrick. Well, well put together. Um, next question is from Chris in Seattle. Hi, Bruce and Stu. And hopefully Max, well, hopefully Max is listening. Uh, Max. Good compliment to Max, though. I know he's he's a big hit, and we don't force feed him on on uh, low grade seafood products. So uh, <laughs> love your podcast. My question to you both is: What is holding schools north of the Mason Dixon line back from joining the ranks of the elite? It seems that the only two schools 
typically mentioned in the elite from the north are Oregon and Ohio State. However, schools like Texas A&M, Tennessee, Ole Miss, Miami, et cetera, are starting to garner the attention of top-level recruits, and yet they don't seem to produce at the levels of comparative schools up north like Penn State, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan State, Washington, et cetera. Why is that? What is preventing these schools, and I think he means these schools being the latter, from getting these elite recruits? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a good question. And and the answer, the you know, the low-hanging answer for years. Take, I think we should take Penn State out of that because Penn State does get a bunch of elite recruits. But they're but his point is they're not winning uh necessarily at that level. So so it's it's not a question of are they get but he's saying what is preventing these schools from getting these elite recruits. Okay. Okay, yeah. Well Penn State is, is getting Penn State's elite getting recruits. the elite recruits. You know, the other schools, the other four I get it. The other four are like kind of they just don't seem to recruit yeah. the same. They more develop guys and find under the radar development guys more. Well, the simple answer is that none of those places are in good recruiting areas, right? And it just the the the, the proportion of talent that that is in the South, and I'm talking Texas through Florida, um, just gives all those programs that he mentioned an inherent advantage. Now that being said, recruiting is more national than it's ever been. I, you know, Ohio State, it used to be under Jim Trestle that Ohio State would build its whole roster practically off Ohio kids, but Urban Meyer changed that. And I think Ryan Day has as well. And, you know, they go and get kids from Texas, Florida, and California, and the DMV, and so on and so forth. So the question would be, well, then why can't these other programs do that too? Um, I think recruiting is very... Uh, it's hard to break the dynamic. Like there's just certain programs that have always been good at recruiting and will always be good at recruiting. And it's hard to break into that club. Now, Oregon, I think, is one that has over the last um, 15 to 20 years. You know, Ole Miss never used to be mentioned among top classes in the country. So it happens. But I, you know, I think that the, the, the fact that Iowa has been as good as they have been for so long and I, if I had to get, I don't, don't have it in front of me, but I would guess their recruiting classes are not ranked all that differently than they were 15 to 20 years ago. It's just a tough, tough cycle to crack, to crack. Don't you think? You know, what's interesting is, so you mentioned Ole Miss a second ago. Do you remember when freeze did crack that, that ceiling? And immediately all whistles and bells yeah. went off back then, yeah. right? It was Robert Kim um, it was the big, I'm blanking the big receiver from Chicago. Uh, Larry Tunsil was in the mix. You know, it was a lot of dudes and they turn out, you know, those guys turn out to be good players too, but it was like, what's going on there. You it's know, why there's so much innuendo about A&M's class last year. Anytime somebody rises up and does something recruiting that they haven't done before, everybody just immediately suspects it's fishy. And I think they do when you're on the top of it. Like, I think people forget that. You know, there were some big recruits that Ole Miss lost to Mississippi State in that mix, right? You know, mm -hmm. it was like, but it's like when you are the one who's the shiniest at that point, I think that's the what that at that point gets a lot of attention. Now, the dynamic that could change this theoretically is NIL. Um, that's certainly what's driving Tennessee's surge in recruiting right now. So if those same rich, uh, remember, wasn't it one or two? super rich Michigan state boosters who are paying Mel Tucker's mm -hmm. $95 million salary. 
Like if you could get those guys to pony up $8 million for a quarterback, then, then suddenly Michigan state might start shooting up the recruiting rankings. Yeah. Um, Why don't you ask me the next question? Eric Schneider from the Netherlands. Considering all of the coaching and camps that five-star high school quarterbacks get nowadays, do you think they can actually improve that much in college as compared to the past? Joe Burrow being the exception, it seems that many highly ranked QBs you see as a freshman are not much better as a junior or senior. That's an interesting observation. It is. um, I do think guys can get better. I think one of the things that's a very lively debate among coaches is how much more accurate a quarterback can get. Josh Allen is the best example of somebody who got way more accurate once he got to the NFL. Um, There's a really good example of a good college quarterback who just, who's going to the NFL now and Desmond Ritter. You know, I talked to some, some coaches who are like, I don't think he's accurate enough to be a, to be a really good NFL quarterback. And yet when you talk to some other coaches who played him over his career, they're like, well, he did get more accurate on the deep ball. They noticed that. And so I think you can get better, but it's going to be interesting because so much of it, I think comes back to how they're used and how they fit in the system. Joe Burrow, I think flourished. Um, He continued to improve, but they really shaped things around what he liked to do. Well, he obviously had a ton of talent to throw to, but the guy who ended up, you know, he improved a lot from year one at LSU over the course of year one. By the end of the year, he had made dramatic improvement and then it kicked up a notch with the offseason. I mean, I think there are certain guys, Kenny Pickett got a lot better yep. at hit over his career. Jalen Hurts. Uh, J- Jalen Hurts Jalen went Hurts from great as a freshman, though, in that. But, but he was the guy who yes, nobody trusted to throw, throw downfield. Remember he was known as a running quarterback. And then his last year at Oklahoma, he's, you know, Heisman runner up, one of the best passers in the country. I also think there's a lot of stuff that players are sorting out. Like one of the more interesting subplots of the season is going to be how much better, if at all is Spencer Rattler at South Carolina. He had a ton of hype last year. He's in the first wave of NIL. And he really was, was, you know, basking in it and they struggled, he struggled. And now he's gone on to South Carolina and we'll see how he does in his second act there. But I think you see, you know, so that's another case where I'm not saying like his, aside from the change in scenery and change in coaching staff and talent, I don't know if there's a lot of parallels between he and Joe Burrow because Joe Burrow wasn't hyped up, you know, early in his career at Ohio state or really much as a recruit. But I think there are quarterbacks you're going to see like, okay, um, how much better is DTR? He's played a lot. How much better does he get? You know, he's in the same system. He's been there for a while at UCLA. Is he the guy who flourishes? I think you look at some other guys we've seen and a lot of them, you're like, okay, we kind of know what this guy is. And, you know, whether it's like a Sam Howell who had a really – fast start to his career and then maybe the talent level wasn't as good around him it's not to say he got worse but i think it just a lot of it depends on the circumstance and the players around you yeah i do think that the guys weren't like a kenny pickett are the exception it does seem to me that like i i think who the kind of guy he's talking about is bo nix who has a inconsistent freshman year but he shows promise and you assume he's just going to get better from there and he kind of 
is the same quarterback. Um, well, look, I mean, Brock Purdy was like that. Um, Penn State has a quarterback who's played yeah. a lot of football now. He's gotten injured, but you know, he's definitely got some ability, but you're wondering like how much better, like here's an example, like Max Duggan at TCU. There was a lot I really liked about him as a freshman, um, had some struggles in, you know, in 2020 coming off injury, um, or illness. I, I'm trying to remember what the medical, you know, diagnosis was there. And then it took him a while to get back. And then, you know, I still think there's tools there where he can be a top level college quarterback. We'll see if it, we'll see if he lights it up under Sonny Dykes in a new system, you know, and, but I, I kind of agree with the question of where Eric is going because a lot of these guys are, are probably more ready to hit the ground running because of the reasons Eric said in his question than they were 15 years ago. But you know, how much more better do they get? It's usually marginal. All right, next question is from your old stomping ground in Atlanta, Georgia, Brian Black. Hi, Stu and Bruce. Pitt finally had a breakthrough season last year, winning the ACC. Pitt just extended head coach Pat Narduzzi, replaced Kenny Pickett with USC transfer Keaton Slovis, and competes in the easier coastal division. Penn State has had back-to-back underwhelming seasons, just signed the number six recruiting class, and gave head coach James Franklin a 10-year coaching contract extension. Which will happen first? Pitt will make the CFP under Narduzzi or Penn State hiring a new coach to replace Franklin? Okay, Stu, I want to add something onto this. Early in the season last year, you were done with Pat Narduzzi. <laughs> you had written him off and said, hit the bricks. Now, what do you think? He had a, it was a phenomenal season. And I think now what we need to find out is how much of it was Pat Narduzzi and how much of it was you know, this, this, like, is, is Keaton Slovis necessarily going to do what, what um, Kenny Pickett did last year? You know, Mark Whipple, the OC that helped produce that uh, great season is gone. You know, to me, whether Pitt has staying power remains very up in the air. That being said, um, James Franklin just signed this huge, huge contract, this 10 year contract. And at least, as of now, seems like he'll be their coach for a long time. So I think this is a very tough choice. Um, but I'm going to say, and also, given what I said about Clemson earlier, there might be that there's a window right now for Pitt to make the college football playoff. That being said, I think I'm going to say the James Franklin scenario would happen before that. I just looked it up. His buyout is $12 million right now, but it falls to $8 million. You know, it's a substantial commitment by Penn State, but it's not that substantial a way to get out of if he were to fall on his face. And of course, what if he, you know, decides to bolt after all? These 10 year contracts seem so, um, you know, like, okay, we don't have to talk about this anymore. And then, you know, one, two, three years into it, you're like, well, actually, it wouldn't cost that much to buy him out. Hey, do we have time for one more? We do. All right, Stu, I'm going to ask you this. You've become our NIL aficionado from David and Los Gatos, California. Last episode, Stu mentioned how NIL collectives are going to be a big deal for recruiting. And even though USC as a school has a lot of money, it doesn't help in NIL or recruiting. Is there any restrictions on universities directly hiring and signing student athletes to NIL type promotion for the school? Schools using athletes' name, image, and likeness to promote ticket sales and merchandise 
seems like a very natural fit. Alternatively, how can laws that enable NIL and being paid for work not inevitably result in directly paying players? Complicated question. For the most part, I think most schools, first of all, there's a lot of state laws that flat out say a school can't get involved in brokering and arranging NIL deals. Um, even in ones where there aren't, the schools tend to be playing that conservatively. Um, but I believe in California, there's some gray area about whether the schools can do that directly. I don't, I don't honestly know. My understanding know. was from talking to people at some of these universities and positions of authority, they interpret it as they could uh, initiate. That's how they yeah. talked about it. But when you say initiate, I, I believe you mean initiate a deal for, you know, to endorse a thir- some, some third party company. What he's suggesting is the schools just flat out cut a check to their players to do, uh, you know, an ad for ticket sales. That I think is a no, no, because that would basically be pay for play. Um, and that's, yeah, I, there are very few restrictions, but that's one of them. And I think there's a pretty easy workaround on that. If you're going to say, Hey, we have these big boosters who are going to spend, you know, again, I use the example of if you wanted Reggie Bush when he was a USC, since that's, since that was brought up, um, since Daniel uh, David had mentioned USC, if you have Reggie Bush and you have big boosters, Reggie Bush comes to your kid's birthday party and you pay him hundred grand or right but the key is the boosters are paying them not the school yes but it's i mean let's not kid ourselves it's like kind of just funneling the money through a different way right well you know usc as of now does not have one of these nil collectives and um it remains to be seen whether that's going to put them at a disadvantage uh, in recruiting against schools you, that do have those. I mean, based off of the news last week, uh, Josh Connolly, a top West Coast offensive lineman, who's in this class, so he would be eligible to go to training camp this this fall. He chose Oregon over USC um, and among other schools. Oregon has a very, uh, you know, their collective is basically Phil Knight. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't like run the day-to-day of it, but he's definitely behind it. And they would definitely be in a position to make a big offer to a kid they really want. Great questions this week, guys. Great questions. Keep them coming. As always, you can send them to the audible pod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.